The Midday Report. I'm Mandy Wiener. Keep listening as we round up the key stories affecting your world with interviews with newsmakers, in-depth analysis and eyewitness news reporters on the ground. The Midday Report. But of course, lots to talk about around the national shutdown, very much consuming the country at the moment. The EFF's plans for Monday and just how big that shutdown will be. Well, the police minister, along with the JCPS cluster ministers, all having a briefing today to speak about that. Big business has been talking about it. Civil society have all issued a joint statement. The taxi industry as well. The EFF very isolated at the moment. I wonder if they are not turning themselves into a national enemy number one at this point uh, around that but they do believe that they are going to get support they will shut the country down so as i said the police minister becky Tsele assuring south africans that the planned shutdown won't bring the country to a standstill let's have a listen to what he had to say want to assure everyone in the country that the 20th of march will be a normal business day we want to reiterate to our international community that Contrary to the pronouncement by those advocating for any disruption, all ports of entry, land, sea and air will be operational. Measures have been put in place to ensure that everyone who wants to go to work, travel for leisure and conduct business on this day does so in a safe and secured environment. Law enforcement officers will be out in their numbers to protect them while enforcing the law. Anyone who intimidates stops anyone from going to work, barricades the roads and highways and uses any form of violence to try and stop our people from going on with their lives will face the full might of the law. We also want to caution against the spreading of messages of fear intimidation on inflammatory statements that could incite violence. This is a criminal offence. We are aware of many social media accounts claiming that hundreds of and thousands of followers are being mobilised to support the protest. The majority of communities and various sectors of society, including Santaco, National Taxi Association, the Road Freight Association, and organized structures within different communities have rejected this call. Police Minister Becky Kele speaking at that press conference earlier, issuing a stern warning to the EFF. He says the country will not be brought to a standstill. He says it will be business as usual. Nokokanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, watching that briefing from the various cabinet ministers today. Nokokanya, tell us what else was said there. Good afternoon, Mandy. So it really is a game of cat and mouse, it appears, because neither one are willing to divulge exactly how uh, they plan on going about the, the either the march on the 20th nor the response to uh, the march on the 20th. So the security cluster cannot give the exact details of its response, of course, uh, because it, it, it is a matter of national security and they cannot give those details. But uh, as your listeners heard there, Mandy, the police minister, as well as defence minister, and the, uh, uh, the 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 minister for uh, justice, are quite clear that they will not tolerate any threat to national security, and if so, they will be ha- heavy-handed in terms of uh, their response to to those threats by the EFF. 
Um, the uh, police minister there also saying that the ports will remain open despite those calls by the EFF for the freight industry, the transport or the taxi industry rather, and businesses to close their doors. Um, even though they have taken quite some time today in this briefing to respond to those threats, they really have downplayed the threats by the EFF, saying they haven't given it much attention, even though the EFF had announced their plans as early as sometime in January. And, um, you know, also very important, Mandy, this issue about cyber crimes and that they will be doubling down on uh, seeing on social media who exactly is inciting those um, the, the violence, if any, come Monday. Um, and also just adding that, they are using those threats on social media to, you know, as lessons from the July unrest and how they can use social media to, uh, as part of their intelligence, to 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 ensure that we don't have an instance where there is a widespread violence or looting in the instance where there there are those concerns, Mandy. Nokukanya, thank you very much. Nokukanya Mtambo, EWN reporter, having a look at that briefing today. The Minister in the Presidency speaking, Minister Becky Kele speaking as well. It is a bizarre situation. The EFF is not saying where exactly they're going to protest. So the police can't say where exactly they're going to be deploying forces. But Becky Kele is saying that it's going to be business as, as usual. If you're worried about the ports, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. But at some point, they're going to have to take some serious action if there is incitement of violence. Well, Several civil society organizations have released a joint statement today condemning that plan shut down by the EFF, saying that they reject the forced national shutdown, also saying we have enough problems right now. We don't need even more because that's all that's going to happen here. It's going to uh, create more problems. Nishan Bolton is a member of the Secretariat from Defend Our Democracy. Nishan, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. 37 organizations have endorsed this statement. What is the essence of what you're saying? The essence, and the greetings to you and your listeners. The essence of what these organizations are simply saying is that we can't be party to and enforce a forced national shutdown, a shutdown in which the people who are being asked to, to, to stay off the roads, to keep their children away from schools, to close their businesses, essentially to stay at home. Um, without them consenting to it, without them being party to the process of decision-making, and without them being, being in agreement with, with, with the objectives or the tactics that are being used. So we, we think that this is the wrong way to, to address what are essentially big problems in the country. Um, it is not the, the kind of constitutional democratic ways, and it doesn't lead to the kind of solutions that, that to the problems that, that, that are, in fact, being highlighted. Mm. Um, you know, when you say airports must shut down, uh, when, when you say buses and roads and, and, and trains and, and essentially people must not move, this is not a march. It's not a demonstration. It's essentially saying that we will, they, they will shut the country down and they want to demonstrate that they have yeah. the power to do that. And, and we can't the, EFF, to that. the EFF's argument, Nishan, is they're saying that it's a democ- democratically constituted right, that they are entitled to protest. It is an accepted norm of protest. You're disputing that. We're not disputing that people have a right to protest. What we are disputing is that you can't call for people not to be going to schools, universities, factories, and businesses not to be operating 
And if they do, there's an implied threat of being looted or other forms of violence that, that might be um, that, 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 that might emanate from the day. They also in the, in the media have talked about all roads, major roads being barricaded, all ports of entry, including roads that lead to borders will be closed. And then they say, we don't want to see a single truck moving. We don't mm. want to see a single train moving. Now that is not, is not the kind of protest that I think most people would associate with being in line with our constitution. Right. Nishan, thank you. Nishan Bolton is a member of the Secretariat from Defend Our Democracy, speaking there about the statement issued by 37 organizations speaking out against this protest. It's not just civil society. Business has also been speaking out about the protest. So too have the taxi associations, and that's critical, right? Because if they don't have the taxi associations on board, then they don't have the support of the taxi drivers. Santaco refusing to participate. The National Taxi Alliance also saying their drivers will be working. The Midday Report. In Cape Town, the city confirming a search and seizure operation taking place at its offices in the CBD yesterday. And those appear to be focused on the Office of Human Settlements Mayoral Committee member, Malusi Boy. The city saying it's waiting for more information. The police saying the operation formed part of an investigation into fraud and corruption. The City of Cape Town Mayor, Jordan Hill Lewis, joining us now. Mr. Mayor, good afternoon to you. Thank you very much for your time. At this stage, is the city or are you aware of what the subject of this raid was? No, uh, we have very scant information. I've just finished a meeting now with the uh, with the SAPs. They they uh, gratefully agreed to come in and, and give me a briefing, but also they can't. You know, they're not really allowed to tell me much about what the, the details of their investigation are. Mm. So I'm afraid at this stage we have very limited information. Obviously, yesterday came as a, a bit of a shock to to me, uh, but um, but I you know I, I do think that in the interim, because it does seem that they are it's it's quite a wide ranging investigation. They did say that the investigation is at an early stage, uh, and but it does seem that it, it it's potentially quite serious. So I have uh, I have asked uh, Councillor Boy to to go on suspension from the Mako in the meantime. Uh, okay, so so you've asked him to go on suspension. Is that uh, uh, while you try and work out what what has happened, or is it pending any kind of of criminal charges? What what will you do going forward? Yeah, the, the, they said to me uh, the, the SAP said to me that they would be able to uh, share some more information with me, perhaps sometime soon in the coming weeks or so. Uh, so on that basis, I you know I'm, I'm prepared to wait for that. Uh, but of course, my first responsibility and my first concern is the integrity of our government, and that's non-negotiable. I've made that clear to all of my colleagues. If any uh, information or any conduct comes to light which which puts that in jeopardy, I will uh, not hesitate to act. So while I wait for that uh, further information from them, I just think it would be better to place him on uh, on suspension in the meantime. Mm. Uh, so, so you say you weren't aware of it beforehand. I mean, this takes us back a, a while. If you go back to the Jinwala inquiry as an example here, the, the great argument between former NPA head Vusi Pakoli and then President Thabo Mbeki was whether or not they needed to inform the political principal about an arrest or, or, a, or a raid beforehand. Do you, do you mm. feel that you shouldn't have been, as you weren't told beforehand that this raid was happening, or do you feel that as the, the politics 
politician responsible that you could have been given a heads up? Well, I perfectly understand why they can't. So I'm not going to argue with them about that because, you know, I know I would have treated that information confidentially, but they don't know that. They don't know that they can trust me. Uh, So they, they would worry that if they tell me ahead of time about a raid, I could tip some people off that, that this raid is going to happen. So of course they, they, there's no way that they can tell me. So I, I'm not even I'm not even angry with them about that. I, I, I completely understand where they're coming from. It has to be confidential. Uh, but of course it, it's a you know it's a big surprise to me uh, hearing about it as it's happening. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much. Jordan Hill-Lewis, the mayor of Cape Town, speaking there about that search and seizure operation taking place at the office of the Human Settlements Mayoral Committee member Malusi Boy, saying that uh, he is now on suspension and if he needs to, he will absolutely act. The Midday Report. The EFF's approach is to try and demonstrate power, power way beyond anything that they actually have. And they use intimidation to try and project this image of power. They are fascists, they are dangerous, and there are no excuses for this. Leonard Inhamanis. Mandy, uh, it's just disappointing for EFF to score political scores. I mean, uh, why using people as scapegoat? Mm-hmm. If they want to protest, let them protest. They shouldn't use people. Remember, no work, no pay. If they don't go to work, they don't get paid. Who suffers? I don't understand the logic of EFF. So I think it's an interesting gamble by the EFF because we're coming up to an election next year. I think what this is going to do is it's them showing their hand. It's the true strength of the EFF. How much support will they really get? Because they're not counting on the support of the taxi industry. Business is against them. As we see now, civil society is against them. A government has been outspoken. Police Minister Becky Kele saying uh, that it will be a normal working day. So we'll be able to see just how much support the EFF actually has uh, or how vociferous is vociferous it is uh, so it is really a gamble but i think what the eff are doing here really is is turning themselves into public enemy number one because nobody wants this protest we have enough problems as it is or you could have the other argument saying we have huge problems why aren't we doing more about it why aren't we protesting but then shouldn't that protest be led by civil society and not political parties the midday report in Parliament today, the suspended public protector, Advocate Busisiwe Mkwebane, back on the stand. She was there yesterday. She spoke about how she is a victim of a political agenda being led by the Democratic Alliance. Today, she's giving evidence about this very contentious decision, uh, her judgment into the CR17 funding report. Remember, she wrongly found that the then-Deputy President, Sir Ramaphosa, had violated uh, the code by mistakenly stating that a payment made to his election campaign by the Watsons and by Bosasa uh, was for uh, was done by his was for consultancy work done by his son Andile. Remember all of that? Well, today she's giving evidence about that. Babalo and Denze, EWN's parliamentary reporter, watching that. Babalo, take us through some of the testimony from today. Hi, good afternoon, man. Yes, indeed. Um, day two of hearings from Kwebana giving evidence. Uh, yesterday, she just gave a, an overview, basically, of her founding affidavit, her first affidavit. Today, really focusing on, you know, one of the main reasons why she's facing an inquiry, and it's related to CR17 bank statements, as well as, you know, the Mossasa payments to that campaign. And she's basically defending her CR17 payments, Mossasa investigation findings, 
And she tells the committee that, you know, she really had, she really had no reason to believe the president or the deputy president at the time, his word, you know, that he was not aware of any payments being made into that trust account. And uh, she, she also, you know, it tells that uh, and she had to look, investigate a bit further by not just taking information from the media or from the president's campaign managers. And she probed further and, you know, discovered other facts which she's standing by um, when she's being um, giving evidence to counsel advocate Stalin Bofu. Let's just take a listen to what she said, Mandy. So during my investigation, I received evidence that showed, among other things, that there were monies transferred to the Cyril Ramaphosa Foundation, mm-hmm. that Mr. Watson was present at the fundraising dinner hosted by Mr. Pre- Mr. Ramaphosa, and that on the 17th of November 2017, Ms. Um, Donay Lee Nicole, the president's legal advisor, sent an email to the president regarding fundraising and events. Babala, we know that the CR17 report has been invalidated by the courts, uh, the court's ruling that the public protect, suspended public protector was wrong here. Do you get a sense from her today that there's an acknowledgement of the court's findings against her, or does she stand by it? Well, mainly the, the sense one gets is that she stands by her findings. Advocate Karim Bofu, his evidence is really not focused on what the court said, but he did you know, give a disclaimer at the beginning that, the evidence that he's going to be leading with the suspended public protector is not trying to, you know, reinvestigate Mosasa or try, you know, you know, get another judgment or question the the, the judgment. So there, there is a sense from her legal team that there is acceptance of the court's judgment. But this is, she says, you know, to give South Africans, the public, you know, she keeps mentioning the public to give them, you know, a better understanding of the situation and her investigation into Bosas, focusing on specific payments, you know, specific individuals and these different intermediaries that she talks about, Mandy. So there is a sense that she is accepting that, but she wants to give, you know, context, that gets greater context to why mm. she came to those findings, Mandy. Babalo, thank you. Babalo and Denze, EWN's parliamentary reporter, Busisiwe Mkwebane, finally having her opportunity to give her side of the story, speaking there about that CR17 funding report. The court's found that she was wrong there. She still stands by it. Well, let's take a listen to some of the WhatsApp voice notes that are coming in so far. Hi, Mandy. It's Winnie here. You know, those people that will be staying at home on Monday and those companies that will be closing, it's because we've got no trust in our security cluster. We we don't trust that the police can protect us from any violence and so on. It will be a pleasant surprise if the police can be there where there's going to be unrest and actually protect the citizens. So, yeah, I think Becky Tell is just grandstanding. I do not see them protecting the civilians. Thank you. Bye-bye. Yeah, this is the problem, right, is how much do you trust the police service and do you trust that they'll keep us safe and that there will be order? Police Minister Becky Kere assuring the public today that it will be a normal work day, that there won't be disruptions, the ports will be operating uh, as per normal. Do you trust him? Do you believe him? And do you believe the police? The Midday Report. Hi, Mandy. I certainly don't know what Julius Malema is trying to prove, but if he's the one that is looking to run our country into the future to being the next president, I think this particular behavior is really putting him in a bad light. So whatever he's going to try and do is definitely, definitely, he's not going to be in the favor of the majority. And above all, above all, 
we need to stand up against a man of such behavior and let him let him then do what he feels he needs to do and make a fool of himself because that's exactly what he what it what it is. He's being foolish. Thanks, Mandy. Good afternoon, Mandy. Ah, Mandy, I don't trust Begitel. Begitel has failed us many times. So on Monday, I'm going to be sitting at home. I'm going to sleep the whole day because I don't trust Begitel. He's not going to protect us. He's just talking, talking, talking as usual. I'm not going to go to work. I'm going to stay safe at home. I don't trust you, Begitel. Good day, I'm in the uh, Norman and Pichere. I think the protest of uh, the EFF on Monday uh, is going to be intriguing, uh, considering that uh, now cabinet uh, through the uh, the minister in the presidency, Kumbuzun Sabini, saying that, uh, quote-unquote, they are concerned. How can they be concerned about uh, a march or a so-called protest? They should put law enforcement uh, on key areas and uh, let's see what is going to happen, uh, because it, it's a protest. A protest is allowed to constitutional in the country. They shouldn't be concerned. They should be running the country in actual fact. Thank you so much. Look, I think governments also learned their lesson from what happened in the July unrest. If they say that they're concerned, they have to give the create that impression that they are on top of the situation so that they're not caught off guard the way they were with the July unrest. So that's why we saw that full JPCS cluster coming out today, the minister and the presidency as well. But I, I, I get the sense, you may disagree with me, that the EFF is not widely supported uh, because civil society, the taxi industry, business, all against them here. Uh, government is saying it will be a normal day. I, I think it will be mostly a normal day. Keep sharing your thoughts too. The Midday Report. So as I mentioned at the start of the show today, I'm in Kabecha in Nelson Mandela Bay in the Eastern Cape. I was here to speak at an event this morning and the nice people at Algoa FM are letting me do the midday report from here today. But there are very serious issues to look at in Kabecha, issues around water supply. At day zero, there's been a spate of violent shootings as well. So we thought we'd check in with Shadley Nash, who is the news editor at Algoa FM. Many of you are from Kabecha. Many of you are... are May may call this home. So let's get a sense of what is happening. Uh, Shadley, um, what 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 is the what are the big kind of news issues that you deal with in your newsroom? Thank you for that. Uh, you touched on some of them. Uh, crime statistics, um, like any other metro, we're facing similar challenges: political contestation, high crime rates, high unemployment levels. Crime stats were out this week. Um, the police minister was recently here uh, to deal with uh, two mass shootings that we've had that have uh, grabbed national attention. So that's what, uh, a big issue. Mm. Unemployment, uh, ailing infrastructure. These are some of the, the major issues that are affecting us as well. But as you, you pointed out, one of the focal areas of the municipality now is the water challenge. Uh, let's so call it a crisis. Water seems to be a massive issue. Everyone I've spoken to in this city um, who is able to afford to has got a water tank. Yes. Uh, people are very mindful of, of water consumption. Well, um, I don't know so much about that because the municipality has been banging on about um, high consumption. Um, last figures they sent out, they said the uh, abstraction or the consumption levels were about 30 million litres more than what is allowed in terms of um, legislation. 
So the appeal is out. Um, the restriction is down to 50 liters per water, uh, per person per day. And, and clearly that's not being adhered to, unfortunately. So the appeal has constantly been to domestic consumers to play their part to avoid day zero. What the municipality is doing in the meantime is looking at augmentation uh, measures um, to stave off uh, day zero. The last we heard, there were about 170 days of water available in our dams, which are currently combined, sitting at around, and where did I make this note, 12.83%. So that's what we have to service the city. So in other words, you're using more water than what you actually have at this point. So it, it really is a problem in terms of yes, consumption. Yes, well, we are also abstracting more water than we should have from these uh, sources, and then con- domestic mm. consumption is higher than what we should be uh, uh, using on a day-to-day basis. Then, as you mentioned, Police Minister Becky Kele was in mm. town on the weekend. There have been big issues with a spate of, of, of violent crime, of shootings. I walked through the newsroom earlier, and the big news story here today is about a woman who uh, seems to have been abducted uh, or kidnapped. Yes. Um, t- you know, shades of the Paniyatu case for many of you in this newsroom, I'm sure. Well, precisely. So when we got the information early this morning, like every other news media, we sprung into action and tried to get verification. What we know so far is that a young woman was abducted by three men outside a business in Newton Park. A vehicle was found under a bridge. Um, they call it Carbon Black, which is an Algorax factory on the N2 outside the city. And one uh, suspect was found inside the car with a firearm and he was taken into custody and arrested. Unfortunately, the two other suspects and the woman are still missing. And at this point, we don't have any updated information, but that's the state of play so far. Okay. Um, and we're just waiting for updates. But yeah, quite a concerning situation. Mm-hmm. And um, it sounds like the Hawks are involved and okay. all hands on deck uh, on this case. Shadley, thank you very much. Uh, Shadley Nash, the news editor for Alcoa FM, giving you a flavor, a sense of what the big news stories in this city are. As you mentioned, of course, water, a big, big, big issue. So uh, we're joined now by Joseph Tsatsire, who is the director for water distribution in Nelson Mandela Bay. Good afternoon, Mr. Tatsiri. Thank you very much for your time today. Uh, looking at this uh, from, from the outside, uh, in terms of the situation in Nelson Mandela Bay, how severe is the problem uh, and do you have a grasp on it? Good afternoon. Good afternoon to your listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. I mean, uh, look, um, it's a crisis point. Um, we're experiencing one of the most, 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 um, uh, brutal drought, you know, over the past seven years or so. And I think, as your guess has indicated there, you know, our combined dam levels are sitting at 12.8%, and combined, you're looking at just under 170 days. And I mean, as I speak to you, there are quite a number of suburbs, you know, that we are providing water through tankering services as well as, you know, uh, 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 public tips, and uh, we we continue to urge residents to reduce consumption because our available production is too petty. And what we are consuming is around 280, so plus or minus 50 megaliters deficit. So yeah, at this crisis point, we are suffering intermittent supply. You know, every second day, depending where you live. A lot of the, the the concern around the supply of water that has been around wastage that it's from from leaks. Uh, has the the city done enough to try and curtail that to ensure that water isn't simply wasted? Look, um, I've spent quite you know this uh, leak. Obviously, there are concerns around leaks, and they do happen on a day to day basis. 
But, you know, I'll spend, for example, yesterday, um, during the day, you know, moving into suburbs and townships, trying to identify exactly these things. And I think to my amusement, most of the areas are quite dry. You know, um, we have actually employed the services of cluster contractors to deal with this. And I think we have got plus nine of them. And I think on a day-to-day basis, we are de- dealing at least, you know, 200 to 300 leaks. Uh, and, and, and on a weekly basis, we are dealing about 1,300 of leaks. Uh, so I think we are on top of the game in terms of dealing with leaks. And I think we have uh, done quite a lot of work to reduce, you know, consumption from that end. But I think on the other end as well, we are asking, you know, um, residents to at least reduce consumption and use an average you know, 50 liters per person per day. Currently, we are seeing a per capita consumption of about 228 liters per person per day. And I think we're saying mm. it must reduce uh, to at least one, uh, to at least 50 for us to be able to continue to provide everybody with water. Is it just about consumption? Are, are you relying too heavily on the public consumption or are you looking at alternative ways of, of increasing supply? Are there options beyond rainfall at this point? Yeah, look, um, there's been quite enormous resources that have come into finding, you know, what I call diversification of the water mix. Um, we have been exploring, you know, groundwater, and I think by the end of uh, um, uh, tomorrow, um, we have concluded, you know, um, uh, quite an, about four groundwater projects um, with a total yield of 30 megalitres of water on a day-to-day basis. So, I mean, that's quite going to impact, I mean, going to reduce the impact of drought. The 30 megs, we launched the other one a day before yesterday. And tomorrow we are actually commissioning another one. And as I say, in total, it's going to be 30 million liters of water that we're going to inject into the system. And I think um, we, again, long-term view, we are looking into desalination. It's, it's something that we consider that, you know, it's going to form the best load, you know, of our water consumption going forward. But there are other alternatives as well, like, you know, retain water influence, which you can actually use to ensure that, mm. you know, we can uh, take it back to drinking water standards and actually provide the city. So, yeah, there are quite a number of those initiatives, and I think we are not sitting on our laurels, uh, just waiting for rain. But I think, yeah, we are doing quite a number of initiatives to ensure that, you know, at least we cushion the city right. from drought. Joseph, thank you very much. Joseph Tsatsire is the Director for Water Distribution in Nelson Mandela Bay. A focus on that as I'm in Kabeha today. So giving you a sense of what the big issues here, what government is doing about it as well. And uh, the big issue really overwhelmingly uh, has been crime from the people I've been speaking to and water. The fact that water is is really in short supply. The Midday Report. It is Thursday on the Midday Report, and on Thursdays we always speak to the author of a local non-fiction book. And today's author is uh, very well known to us in the journalism industry, Diane Hawker. The book is called How to Steal a Gold Mine. It is the Aurora story. And this is a, a story that really made headlines because in 2009, Aurora Empowerment Systems, a black-owned, politically connected business, made a bid to rescue the liquidated Pomodzi gold mines. And you'll remember the characters of Kulubuse, Zuma, Michael Halley, Zondua, Mandela, who were all listed as the directors of Aurora. And it all looked too good to be true. They were promising to turn the mine into a new business, but... 
The cracks appeared, many workers and suppliers went unpaid, and Aurora managed mines were stripped of assets as illicit payments were made. And then, of course, it came to the fore that uh, all of this was pretty much dodgy. Diane Hawker, the author of this book, joining us now. Diane, thank you so much for your time, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much, Mandy, and and, uh, thank you also to, to the viewers if they've already looked out for this one. So you worked on the story as a as a journalist for over a decade. You researched the Aurora story, you did interviews, you spoke to unions, you looked at court documents. How did it become a book? Well, to be honest, it was uh, something that um, I, I was a little bit obsessed about, to be quite honest. Um, I'd worked on the story initially at the Sunday Independent, and in the time of covering the the court case, uh, the initial court cases and the initial liquidation, I started collecting different various documents relating to the story. Um, over the years, when I worked at ENCA, I, I kind of stuck with it. And it was just something that I couldn't quite let go of, particularly because the story really wasn't completely done. Um, you know, I, I don't want to spoil too much for what's in the book, but, you know, one of the things that really stuck with me was how the workers who had worked at the Aurora Mines remained in this strange limbo, um, waiting for some kind of indication of whether they would get funds owed to them over the years. And there were always glimmers of hope, but it never quite got to the point where everyone was actually satisfied. And I think that was part of the motivation for the book. Um, and it's, and I kind of explained that in the story as well and how that came about and, and where things have ended at this point. You tell the story uh, through Susan Ferreira, the widow of a mine worker who died of suicide after the company he was working for was liquidated and, and, and sold uh, to Aurora. Uh, and, and it's very important for you throughout the book that you explain that this was not a victimless crime. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think in South Africa, we, we, we have a lot of issues of corruption and sometimes the corruption is really captured through the lens of, of numbers. You know, um, it's, it's a hundred million here. It's 200 million there. It's a billion there. Um, but we don't always have an opportunity to connect those numbers to actual human beings. And in the Aurora matter, there was from the very beginning that opportunity to be able to say, actually, who was affected by what took place? Um, you mentioned Susan Ferreira. She's one of the, the people who I spoke to. And it was quite a, a harrowing interview, if I do say so myself, uh, a difficult one. It took me a while to recover from it after having seen her. I actually just sat with the recording of that interview for a while because it was such a difficult conversation to have um, because her life has completely been changed by what happened. Um, you know, she was married to Marius Ferreira and they kind of had a good life planned and they had an, an idea of how their life would turn out, turn out. And this turned it completely on its head. She's currently living in, you know, government funded housing. At the time that I spoke to her, she could barely pay her bills. She didn't have any sugar um, to be able to offer me any tea when I came to visit her. And I could see that, you know, she felt really bad about this, but this was her everyday life. Like I couldn't take offense at all to that because that was her existence and how much her life had been changed. Mm. And I spoke to other workers as well who were also stuck in similar predicaments, um, who were either living in hostels, had had to take on peace jobs. Um, some admitted that they had, you know, um, 
turn to a life of crime. Um, and, and I think it's important for us to connect all of those developments back to the Aurora deal and how it, it went south. Yeah. And a big reason that nobody was looking at it was because of the politically connected directors. So Khulubuse Zuma, former President Jacob Zuma's nephew, his lawyer, Michael Halley, the former President Nelson Mandela's grandson. So because of all of these politically connected directors, it did look too good to be true. So no one looked close enough. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the signs were there from the very beginning that this deal was not what it was set out to be on paper. Um, and so part of what I did is I went back to that very beginning and looked at the bid documents that were set forward. And I mean, the bid documents set out this fantastic deal. They're offering to buy these mines at 650 million. Um, they're saying that the workers are going to get you know, a, a, um, a buy-in scheme, there'll be health facilities, there'll be housing. And this is a business that in real terms wasn't even in existence a year prior. Um, so w- one imagines if closer attention had been p- paid to those details of where they're really getting their funding from, do they actually own the businesses that they are saying on paper that they, they own? Um, how long has the business even been in a existence. If close attention had been paid to that, I think that uh, possibly another buyer would have could have been brought on or Aurora could have been forced at the outset to actually prove a lot of the assertions that they were making on paper. And if they couldn't have proven them, which they didn't in the long term, you know, then we'd be able to see that actually these guys are, are not talking about mm. what's really there. They're, they're creating a bit of a smoke screen and it's a smoke screen that ultimately allowed them to have access to these mines for 18 months or more, and in that period, conduct mining activities. And in fact, also, there was a lot of um, um, asset stripping that took place during that time. As we can see from the content of your book, there is a litany of evidence of the dishonesty from the directors um, and, and just wrongdoing that has been done. But despite this, all of those involved are not in jail. There's been no criminal action against uh, uh, any of the key players, even though you believe that there is evidence for that to happen. Well, it's, it's not just me that believes that there's evidence. Um, Mandy, you must re- recall that there was a, an inquiry that was done by the master of the high court um, that was chaired by advocate Wayne, Wayne Gibbs. And in his report, he called for further investigation into what happened at Aurora, further criminal investigation um, because of what was set out in the court papers and or, or what was set out in that investigation. Um, as part of that inquiry, there was evidence of a letter for 20 million rand that was essentially a fraudulent letter. And a lawyer which worked for for um, Aurora wrote that letter um, allegedly at the behest of the of the uh, company uh, managers, saying that he had received this 20 million. And he admitted on the record that he had not received that 20 million. There was a case registered at the time, but nothing actually happened with that case. Um, Judge Eberhard Bertelsmann, for example, who, um, you know, o- oversaw the, the, the high court hearing into whether the director should be held, um, uh, liable for what happened. He, in his judgment, made some really, um, you know, he said some really strong statements against them, saying that there was no capital available other than 15 million rand that was borrowed from, from friends and family. And he says that, 
And I quote, the entire project was and remained a pipe dream with disastrous consequences for many individuals. Hmm. And in my book, I really tried to, 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 as far as possible, quote what was already on the record to show that it wasn't something that I'm making up or allegations that people were making, but these are some assertions that were made or, 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 or interviews that were done mm. with people that were involved at the time. These are the directors themselves speaking about what money they did or didn't have. Sure. Their business partners, um, Faisal and Sally Barn are speaking about what was done behind the scenes and weaving that all together to create a clearer picture of what actually took place. Well, Diane, thank you for this uh, great piece of journalism, and uh, it will make you angry. I can assure you of that. So Diane Hawker is the author. The book is called How to Steal a Gold Mine. It is the Aurora story. The Midday Report. That's a wrap of the day's news. Don't forget you can catch the full Midday Report live on 702 and Cape Talk via our streams on YouTube and our website 702.co.za and capetalk.co.za. Keep checking in for updates from my colleagues at Eyewitness News. Till the next time, I'm Mandy Wiener. The Midday Report.